and working with the adults as well. And in the difficult trade-offs between the two, sacrificing the students for the adults. So that's my first provocation. How truly stupid-centered are you? And it's a provocation for me in terms of my research and writing. Have I really captured what this is about? This is a photo of Salvega Jula, the principal of Auckland's largest multicultural high school, serving mostly students from Pacific Island communities. And I had the honour of writing a reference for Selby on his retirement when his colleagues were nominating him for Royal Honours. You still have Royal Honours? You've ditched that, have you? We ditched it for a while and then brought it back again. Anyway, this was a night, and I found myself writing about Selby. And I wrote and surprised myself. Selby is the most student-centered leader I have worked with. And I've researched with quite a few. And then I thought, why did I write that? He doesn't fit any of the indicators very well that I've established for student-centered leadership. Mind you, there were 700. What is it? How many were there? That's school sector, 
uh, only a tiny one in New Zealand. Um, so being a prestigious state school is quite um, prestigious. So, <laughs> so they decided under the previous principle, we want to be the Auckland Grammar of the South, that they were going to have improved new high standards. So Salvi challenged them around what it does to the psyche of kids to be constantly assessed in ways that they and their teachers know is going to pursue, is going to lead to predictable failure. And he challenged them also to not dumb it down, but change their pedagogy as well. Change the way they taught. So Selby didn't make the mistake that some leaders make in this type of school of privileging the pastoral, the social, and the cultural over the academic. He did both. He did both. Selvi was known for loving the students. He was truly student-centered in that he spent his lunchtimes in the camp talking with them. He wanted to know what their holidays had been like. He wanted to talk to the students who were desperate for the holidays to end because home life was so dramatic. He knew them and he loved them. And yet in those books, and in that research, I haven't written about that. And it's a big gap. The dispositional side of leadership, the passion, the love, the character, <coughs> a student-centered leader, the character. Student-centered leadership had its origins in that Ministry of Education report, all 300 pages, available to you free online at the Ministry of Education website in New Zealand. I want you to look it up now. <laughs> that report is the original research that I did to produce student-centred leadership. And when I say original research, I need to be careful. Because student-centered leadership is based on, a meta, on two meta-analyses of the evidence of the relationship between leadership practices and student outcomes with all the confounding variables, more or less, controlled. So I did two meta-analyses. One was the average effects of transformational instructional transformational versus instructional versus other theories of leadership on student outcomes and the other was let's forget the big academic theories they're too abstract to be helpful anyway and look at leadership practices and what do we know about the effects of those practices on student outcomes and that's the latter meta-analysis then was, I wrote about that in that book there, Student Education. So if you want to know all the gory methodological details, download the 365 pages available free to you from the Ministry of Education website, 
otherwise read this book. The one in the middle is the Danish translation. There's been other translations um, of the book. So I think I've summarised that. There wasn't much research which met those criteria at the time. One Australian study done by Bill Mulford and Hayley Sillins looking at the relationship between leadership and social outcomes, actually, um, <coughs> in Australia and in Tasmania, as far as
so both formal, in other words, or informal, went into that dimension. <coughs> Having set priority goals for improvement, leaders then make a difference in the way, by the way they resource those goals. So every item around the use of time, money, and materials went into that dimension. And then having resourced their goal pursuit, they get involved in overseeing, monitoring the quality of curriculum and teaching. So planning, curriculum, sorts of things that Misty was talking about in terms of the way writing is taught, for example, is in that dimension. Now for those of you that are leading large schools, you are overseeing the delegated authority of others faculty heads, departmental heads, team leaders, middle leaders who do this work in large schools. But these items were about the way you, as principals and senior leaders, oversee, support, monitor, follow up on the work that those delegated leaders are doing in this dimension. And then the one with the really big effects, <coughs> which is leading teacher learning and development. Leaders making a difference, because as you get more involved in monitoring the quality of curriculum and teaching, particularly around the pockets of underperformance and the within school variance in teaching quality that I talked about yesterday, then you learn what your teachers need to learn in order to meet students' needs better and achieve your goals. And leading and being part of that learning is that big dimension with the effect size approximately 0.8. And all of that sits on a foundation of an orderly and safe orderly and safe for students and for staff. So this is the well-being <laughs> Now these are the average effects. They are not a rule book. They do not tell you, oh, well, that first dimension is not as important as the others, so we won't take any notice of it. As I say to our new principals in New Zealand, and now in Australia as well in some states, I say, if you've just taken over a school where your biggest challenge is to get students and teachers into class at the same time and on time, then you start in dimension five. which has the embarrassing title of road testing Robinson. 
which is a test of the of Robinson's student-centered leadership theory of the impact of leadership on student outcomes. And what the horizontal graphs, uh, what, what the, um, sorry, the vertical axis shows is um, student mean scores on school performance grouped by well below, etc., well above, and on goals, and you've got the five dimensions around the bottom. Now, there's a very high correlation between, for those 160 schools, between the extent to which teachers reported their leadership doing the practices that involved in those five dimensions and the performance of those schools in terms of student outcomes. It's a correlation. There may be methodological, I, I, I can look at the study, I think that the measures are independent measures. The New Zealand Council of Educational Research developed a measure of student-centered leadership, which teachers complete, and that was based on the best evidence synthesis work of those five dimensions. So the measures are pretty robust of leadership. What about in terms of the school performance measures? Um, I'm not quite um, as familiar with those. But there's some one independent um, test of the relationship between <coughs> my theory of student-centered leadership and student outcomes. So here's another model <coughs> which has those dimensions as the horizontal lines. And I think of that as the watch of student-centered leadership. What are some of the practices about which you can leverage in order to make a bigger impact on student outcomes? But the three capabilities vertically integrated with the horizontal dimensions answer a question, how do you do student-centered leadership? What are the capabilities that leaders need? And by capability, I mean clusters of knowledge and skill that you need to do those sets of practices embedded <coughs> in those dimensions to do those well. And I think there are only three capabilities that we need to be developing. Only three. We do not lead long lists of principal leadership capabilities. Because the more we create long lists, the more we fragment the holistic and integrated and magical work on leadership. So those three capabilities are that you use your deep educational knowledge and I think we greatly underestimate how deep it needs to be today. And I don't mean yours in the sense of just in your head. I'm talking distributed knowledge. So think of the knowledge base that you have access to for your leadership. And it needs to be a lot richer and deeper than we used to think. 
mean, I can remember when to get me a teacher, you needed, you were, you were selected to be a teacher on the basis of common sense and a love of children. You remember those days? That was about it. So the first capability is that you can integrate appropriate and relevant education knowledge into your practice, into your decisions. So if you are turning your school upside down, going from horizontal to vertical grouping, what do you know about the evidence of such restructuring on student outcomes? We know it creates an enormous amount of work for you and your staff. Is it going to make any difference to student outcomes? Is there any evidence of that? That's what I mean by that dimension. And the second one is solving complex problems. It's e relatively easy to set goals. What is hard is overcoming the numerous obstacles to achieving them. That's complex problem solving. And the third is building relational trust while doing the work. So, <clears throat> so the leadership capabilities, I think of them as you are using your knowledge to solve complex problems while building trust with those involved. And notice that I sort of ran it all together because the work of leadership is not about building trust and then doing the work. That is an adult-centered way of thinking about leadership because while you're building trust, waiting to build sufficient trust in the bank in order to be able to withdraw something from the bank in order to do some tough stuff, what's happening to the students? We need to be able to build trust while doing the work. So that seven minute video I showed you yesterday, I was one of the things I was trying to model there was the integration of trust building and learning together some important stuff about the work. and solving the problem of the lineup of students outside the deputy principal's door, doing that at the same time. So we've got five dimensions, which is the what of student-centered leadership, and three capabilities. Now, I'm going to ask our IT man at the back to ring a bell in three minutes, because I'm going to give you an activity, and I don't trust that I can bring you back <laughs> I told you this yesterday, didn't I? I don't trust that I can bring you back in a timely way. So the school bell is going to go in three minutes. And I'd like you to just talk about this. Were there any surprises in the research evidence about the effect of the different types of leadership? And are there aspects of educational leadership that you think are important that are not included in the five dimensions or three capabilities. Okay? So I'll just so that's the activity. Any surprises? Any omissions? Go on, three minutes. Bell's gonna go in three minutes.
alarm some of you. Sorry. Okay. So just, I'd love to hear your um, your views, but there isn't time. Um, <laughs> shall we have one, or shall I go on? One. One comment. Oh, we can have it this afternoon. See, I've put them on. Oh no, this one. Hi. Look, we've actually done a lot of work, Vivian, in your leadership, student-centred leadership dimensions. So really nothing was a surprise to us as a leadership team. However, I've recently done this with um, our teacher leaders. And certainly um, what came strong and clear from them was the focus on um, leaderships about establishing goals and expectations, with minimal focus from them around ensuring quality teaching and leading teacher learning and development, which is a bit different, I guess, to the very traditional PL. So that's something that we've learned is not just about senior leadership understanding this. Actually, everyone's a leader in their own right. So building that amongst the whole community. The one thing that um, we've learned over time is the importance of cultural leadership and how where does that fit into this? And that's one element that we're exploring as we have very diverse communities um, and how we incorporate that into the way that we lead schools. Yes. Okay, the question about where does cultural leadership fit in? Uh, I have um, probably not very adequately covered that. I would put that in dimension five, which is safe and order. That everyone feels they belong at the school. They feel that, I mean, some of the student voice assessments now have items in them. This is not leadership, but student voice assessments have items in them like. Um, uh, my teachers care about me, better item even than that is my teachers care about my learning. There is at least one adult who knows me well in the school, those sorts of items. And so cultural leadership for me is attending to that. Student, the, the feedback from student voice about those issues, that would be one aspect of it. There isn't a separate dimension on it because the leaders <coughs> at the time and probably still do not have separate items about it, but I would position it as part of Safe and Orderly. And thank you so much, you're quite right about the fact that this applies to middle leadership and team leadership as well. I'm going to talk now about setting goals, establishing goals and expectations. And the way I want to talk about this, the thing that I want to emphasise is is that it is absolutely critical to understand the mechanisms that make these dimensions work. Because it's only by understanding the mechanisms or the theory behind it that will make it possible for you to craft these dimensions in your context in ways that will bring their benefit. Because it is perfectly possible to do some of this stuff and make things worse. And I'm going to and I'm going to give you examples of that. And you make things worse when you do it without understanding the theory behind goal setting, for example, which and if those conditions aren't in place, goal setting won't work. 
We've seen that. Goal setting helps prevent that. And you know that goal setting is critical around that third school improvement part of your role I talked about that you said. Why set goals? To me, the fourth, the fourth box there, sorry, the third, to establish what is relatively more important than other important things that's the most important. <laughs> One of the wonderful things about us as in the education field is that we never wake up in the morning thinking that what we're doing is not important. Whereas if you talk to, we have at, at, at university, we have quite often, we have accountants, people from commerce, a few, who come into our secondary teacher education program. And why have they made the shift? Because they woke up in the morning and said, hmm, what do I want to do this for the rest of my life? How important is this? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are some ways of getting a great deal of purpose and moral purpose out of those occupations. But some people don't. And I think that in education, we don't have this problem, that problem. We have a different problem, that in education, everything is important everything and so we are overwhelmed with a sense of duty and passion for doing that stuff like that principal who allowed 200 extracurricular activities in his school there was a lobby group and an argument behind every one of those activities including underwater water polo <laughs> So goal setting gets us out of that conundrum by making them tough decisions about what is relatively more important than all the other important things. And that's why it is, it, it's really important. And this is important too. This is my one slide summarising the theory of goal setting. And I think that if you understand this, you will be able to reflect on how you do goal setting in your school, or your department, or your team leaders that you were talking about. So how does it work? It only works if three conditions are met. That the people whose energy and effort is required to meet the goals are committed to them. And that's where your school vision and values come in. In other words, your goals are linked to something that they consider already consider valuable and important. That shouldn't be too hard. Again, because in education we have this wonderful common ground of, share, of caring about the well-being and the achievement of our kids. So commitment to the goals. But teachers won't become committed to goals that they think are unachievable, that they think they don't have the capacity to achieve. So you set a goal for a group of learners, and the teachers have failed with those learners for five years, so just setting a goal is not going to do it. Because all their experience tells them that it's not going to work. So they have to believe that you are going to help them develop the capacity to achieve the goals. 
and goals need to be specific and unambiguous. So those are three conditions. So what are the mechanisms that make this motivational strategy, because that's what goal Z is, work? Goals create a discrepancy between where we are and where we want to be. And because we espouse it and value it, that discrepancy is uncomfortable. And we are motivated to reduce the incongruence, to reduce the discrepancy. So because of that, we persist more than we would otherwise to achieve the goal. We focus attention and effort on it. We've got a goal in science, and we don't like teaching science as primary primary school teachers because we've had a poor background on it. So we tend to do something else, plus the YouTube videos, right? But if we've got a goal which has been set collaboratively, and my lack of confidence in science has been discussable from the beginning, and I trust that I'm going to get help to teach it differently, then I will not skip the science lessons. I will do it. I will have my attention and effort focused in a way that it wasn't before. So the consequences of goal setting, higher performance and learning, sense of purpose and priority, sense of efficacy, increased enjoyment of the task. Now you'll only get higher performance and learning from your goal setting if those conditions are met. Okay. So it's not just about, and the most important thing is not knowing that there is a relationship between an effect size of 0.4 or whatever it is between goal setting and student outcomes. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is this slide. That's the most important thing. Because that knowledge and that slide, if you understand it, gives you the tools to craft goal setting in ways that are like, highly likely to deliver the intended outcomes. Now this slide is important too, because there are two sorts of goals. There are performance goals and learning goals. So you've checked the capacity with your teachers when you set this goal for improved achievement. And, and, and better attitudes towards science. You've checked and had the conversation about teacher capability from the outset, made it okay for me to say that I guess I do dodge teaching it and no, I'm not confident in teaching it. And so you've judged that I have insufficient capacity to meet those goals. So you should not set performance goals for me and my class. You should set learning goals, okay? In other words, a goal that I have, my goal is to learn something about the teaching of science or to learn some science. Or as I heard about a primary school the other day in Auckland, no, it wasn't Auckland, but it was both plenty. Uh, teachers were given a maths tutor, and the sole purpose of that maths tutor was to build the content knowledge of maths of the teachers. Because they had been involved in a program where it was impossible to teach the maths in the way required because they didn't know enough mathematics themselves. So those are learning goals. 
And one of the things we know about what happens in organisations when performance goals are set, when people don't have sufficient capacity, is that unethical behaviour follows. So quite often when people are, especially if it's high stakes, so the combination of insufficient capacity and high stakes, and I would add a third, undiscussability, which is your relational side of it, your trust side of it, you get that toxic combination and you get unethical behaviour. You get fraudulent data. You get misuse. A really important um, distinction there. So performance goals are achievement of a specific outcome and a learning goal is learning the knowledge and skills required to achieve that outcome. Now of course you should link the two so that that science teacher's learning is not going to take two years. And meanwhile, nothing much is happening for those kids. Okay? You should leave the time. But there's nothing crueler than setting high stakes goals for people who all the past experience and evidence suggests that they can't do it. In all my work in schools, you know, this, this phrase, is it will or is it skill? It's 90% of the time, it's skill. It's a skill obstacle. It's not a will obstacle. So getting to your goals. Yes, overcoming the obstacles. That's problem solving. And we're working on, um, in Victoria, we're working on a um, <coughs> program to uh, work with senior educational leaders and school improvement leaders on complex problem solving and how to stop the quick fix mentality of people going into schools with programs, uh, whether they're from publishers or whatever, before there's been adequate inquiry into the cause of the problem. Um, a few minutes 
one, ensuring to teaching skills. Because one of the things I've discovered is that leaders, especially in large schools, sometimes don't engage in this dimension. They don't address the pockets of problematic teaching practice. Because they lack confidence in what quality teaching looks like. Particularly for those of you in secondary schools. And you're wondering about observing or going into classrooms. And that English teacher looks at you and says, but your background's biology, isn't it? So how can we have an approach to this dimension, to these leadership practices, that find a defensible theory of quality teaching that applies across any context? Is that possible? And my answer is yes, if you take a student-centered approach. And this is what I mean by it. Quality teaching maximizes the time that learners are engaged with and successful in the learning of important outcomes. Now that theory of quality teaching says nothing about the moves the teacher is making. It, is admit, it, it admits any style of teaching that is ethical, of course, and it meets those criteria. So let's put aside the arguments about group teaching, teaching from the front, didactic teaching, advanced organizers, use of praise. And let's certainly put away the checklist of teaching practices and focus on the impact on the students of whatever is happening in that classroom. So that concept of quality teaching treats time, students, students' time as the most important resource. And all the available time is inside the black box. And what should be happening is that the pink box of academic learning time for students should stretch as far as possible towards the borders of the black box. But it is eroded by three or four things. Firstly, that the lesson and materials are misaligned to the learning outcomes that are important. Teachers, particularly in primary schools, spend an enormous amount of time designing resources and materials that entertain the students, the children, that are lovely, encourage participation, highly enjoyable, and misaligned to the learning outcomes. The second thing that erodes academic learning time is the lack of engagement of students because, and I don't mean just behavioural uh, disengagement, I mean cognitive disengagement. The teachers are not picking up their misunderstandings because they are not inquiring into the thinking of the kids for a doctoral student using a theory of action approach with high school math students finding out the beliefs and the thinking that produces routine sets of misunderstandings that their teachers never detect. 
lack of success erodes that time as well. So finally, four questions that you can use, I think, and you can give me some feedback in our later um, uh, discussions of whether you think these can be used. Quality teaching. You've gone into a classroom, you're talking with a teacher. The first indicator of quality teaching is that important learning outcomes are being pursued, whether they're on the whiteboard or not, but the students should know them. So you ask, what are the intended learning outcomes for this lesson or unit of work? Your teachers should be able to tell you that. And they should be able to give reasons why they're important. And what I should have in here as well is that the students of a certain age should be able to tell you as well, probably from a very young age. So that's the first question about the learning outcomes. And I talked about how quality teaching resources is a, are aligned to those outcomes. So how are the resources, activities, assessments aligned to the intended student outcomes? That's your second question. Can teachers tell you that? What is the alignment <coughs> of the two? And your third question of teachers, what do your teachers know about how well the students were focused on the big ideas in the lesson, on the big ideas. And that's about the behaviour and cognitive engagement. So that's the test of that criteria. And the fourth one is the success criteria. What do you know about how the students understood the big ideas? And what are the remaining misunderstandings of particular students? Yes, the maths teachers that my doctoral students are studying, they know which students make mistakes. They know which students don't pass the assessments, but they don't know what is in the kids' heads that produce the mistakes. So they don't know the misunderstandings. And their reteaching is well-intentioned but misguided because they see the mistakes and they reteach the same way. And they reteach. And then the kids start to believe that they are truly dumb because the teacher has told me this three times and I still don't. So that probing into the heads of kids around their mistakes is really So that's just a reminder to conclude of the criterion and those four questions. Now the slides will be are available. Right. Yes. These slides will be available to you, so don't worry if you missed those questions. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's my pleasure to thank you for not just this morning's plenary, but the work we did with you yesterday. As I drove in this morning, I still had a few words spinning around in my head, and we discussed some of them again this morning around collaborative problem solving and school improvement. I think um, all of us would have to agree that in our particular 
uh, teaching area of Canberra are fortunate that we work in networks that we can get together in groups like this and use our, as you would say, as part of the capabilities, our deep knowledge of education. I'm really pleased to say that Parsi and Misty and yourself are now part of our deep knowledge. I think it's a very important capability as we extend what we're doing in schools. I was also fascinated this morning by some of the effect size and the evidence base. I myself am a big fan of, of evidence-based practice. Um, I'm not surprised at all by the large, the, the large effect size, particularly around uh, leading teacher learning and development. I'm not at all surprised. I know that as we do more work with you today, I'll have a chance to ask a few more questions. But the one thing I would confirm is our jobs are made a little easier as, as leaders when we do have a strong student-centred leadership style. So when those tough questions come about and we bring them back to why is that important for the young people in our schools, it just makes sense. I must ask one further thing because I know I'll get the hairy eyeball get off quickly. Can you all send us a, um, an alert as soon as, as the book and the 10 years of work eventuates because I'm fascinated and I didn't get a picture of all of those slides today, but we really do appreciate We know we've got more interesting sessions with you this afternoon, so thank you so much, Vivian.